0: Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Joining us today is Milton Mueller. He's a professor at the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Public Policy and director of the Internet Governance Project. He recently published a paper with the Cato Institute on moral panic and social media. Welcome to Free Thoughts.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: At the beginning of your paper, you make an interesting point that it's not the activity that we do on social media that's new but instead that everyone can see us doing it.
1: Yes, that's, um, I think, the surprising and shocking thing about social media is that uh, it's so easy to find out what millions and even billions of people are, are doing in some dark corner of the internet. And uh, you have these powerful tools for searching and locating things and for tagging things. Uh, and of course, these things can be manipulated or exploited in various ways to get attention, but fundamentally uh nothing that's happening on social media wasn't happening in some way before
2: so is that just was part of this says that I'm thinking too that there were racists before social media. And now it just seems like we might be able to see them better, or hear them better, or they're willing to speak out in certain ways. And of course, we interacted with people in, in various ways for other social purposes. So maybe we're over, like a little bit overblown on how big of a problem these things are.
1: I think it's uh, actually even worse than that, in the sense that we are. We are pretending that the problems that we see uh, that are revealed to us by social media are actually caused by social media. And I think that's uh, that's a mistake that's going to lead uh, to crackdowns on freedom of expression. So we have, um, you know, let's take this latest case and let me take uh, deliberately the, the most offensive group of people I can imagine, which is the ones that seem to be congregated around 8chan. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- these are sort of misogynistic, uh, racist, whatever, uh, all kinds of um, bad feelings um, are, are expressed uh, on this group. Uh, but it's not clear, number one, that, you know, the the mass murders that took place uh, from people who happened to be on that format uh, were caused by the fact that they were on social media. It is in fact uh, probably better that we can actually see that these people are saying these things and doing these things.
0: Is this related, you call it the, the fallacy of displaced control?
1: Exactly. So what people seem to be saying is, you know, okay, we've just had a mass murderer, and that mass murderer appeared on 8-chan, so let's pull down 8-chan. Let's erase 8 from our vision. And now we can kind of pretend like mass murder is not a problem, that this will never happen again because we have eliminated the, the discussion board uh, that this guy happened to use. And that strikes me as kind of obviously a fallacious way of thinking, but it's such a powerfully, a symbolically satisfying way of dealing with the problem that it's hard for people to get beyond it.
0: Aaron uh, Let me push back a little bit on that to see. That there, it seems like there's a critique of what you're saying. The way that you're presenting it sounds like basically the equivalent of sticking your fingers in your ears, right? Like, you, you, There's stuff happening, there's people saying things you don't like, and the way you're going to solve it is by putting your fingers in your ears so you don't hear it anymore. Um, but it still is, of course, going on just like it's always been going on. And I think that's that's one way to look at it, but it does seem like these platforms can potentially play a role in that they're providing a medium for communication that didn't exist before. So it's not just that we are hearing about or that these racists are more visible than they used to be, but also that these racists who used to be like... One guy kind of angry at the world but hanging out around mostly normal people is now able to find a bunch of other people who are angry about the world in the same ways and producing feedback loops that make his views more entrenched or more extreme or more dangerous, more dug in, in ways that maybe wouldn't have been possible when he didn't have thousands of people spread across the world to commiserate with.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, there's a grain of truth in that, and there's a, there's something to pay attention to in that, and and that is, uh, yes, the the social media is so powerful in terms of locating information and locating people that you can form like minded groups of people that probably would not have been able to find each other uh, before, but it's not at all clear that that in fact leads to uh, more violence, or even causes the violence to begin with. So, for example, um, y- you, it's not difficult to come up with very many instances of mass murder uh, that either predate social media or that actually seem to have had nothing in particular to do with these social media communities. Now, what I do think happens is that there is uh, what you call a genre or a, a, um, an imitation effect. So somebody hears about a, a mass murder, and this becomes sort of like these school shootings of alienated uh, high school or junior high school students in the 90s. Uh, this becomes some sort of a reference point that people can imitate uh, because they've heard about it. And it's definitely true that that happens. However, the problem there is not that there are these communities of people who have located each other. In that case, the problem is simply that we heard about it, right? And so what are you saying? Are you saying that the media should not actually report on these events? Fundamentally, if you're saying that uh, the problem is that people hear about these things and then can imitate them, I think that that may in fact be true. But that's not a problem unique to social media, and it isn't a problem that is um, necessarily solved by trying to suppress the, the communication interactions that these people have. I still think it's better for us to be able to see these interactions going on and to be aware of these communities as they're forming.
2: Now, of course, the moral panic around social media does not We've recently had these shootings, and so it's, that's in the news. But for a few years now, especially since the election of Donald Trump, we've talked about another thing that people are panicked over, which is fake news. Um, is that something that we should be concerned with?
1: Well, w- we should be concerned with fake news, uh, and people have been concerned about uh, various forms of uh, media bias, uh, manipulation of the media, and so on. And again, it's true that uh, the interconnected uh, network society and the the massive scale of user generated content uh, creates sort of new problems and new techniques for propaganda, for disseminating information. Um, but... Again, the, the, the idea that uh, social media uh, is inherently a sort of a one-way ticket to all of these bad things you hear about is definitely a manifestation of moral panic. I mean, uh, these people want to blame almost everything bad that's happened that was in some way connected to social media. Uh, they want to attribute the causation to the existence of social media.
2: We've said moral panic a couple times, uh, but... What? How are you defining that? You kind of have a more specific definition of that than just the colloquial moral panic.
1: Right. There's a uh, The term moral panic comes from uh, sociology, and it's about this sort of uh, self-reinforcing feedback loop in which people take uh, a threat or a problem in society, and they uh, amplify it and elevate it to the point where um, – it, it takes on a life of its own, and people start attributing everything to that, to that cause uh, without any sort of proportionality or rationality to, to the relationship between cause and effect.
2: You use a line uh, the untypical is made typical. Uh, in, in describing moral panics uh, from sociologist Stanley Cohen, which it's kind of interesting, because it reminds you of things too, like the satanic panic uh, in the '80s when something right. that is very, very uncommon becomes to be seen as extremely common, and possibly in your child's kindergarten right now. And f- fake news is possibly another one of these. But back to the question of fake news, it's it's interesting because there's we've. We have a baby boomer generation that remembers the, and people younger than baby boomers who remember the three networks and the sort of centralizing forces of those three networks, and how that was some sort of great period of time where there was some overlapping consensus due to listening to Walter Cronkite or David Brinkley or Tom Brokaw or any of those, and but that was also a pretty strange moment in American history, like that most of American history, we didn't have three sources of news that most people turned to, and then a few newspapers. It was all spread about in different ways around the country and pretty localized. And Of course, people are always prone to believing in fake things and biases. So Maybe all that fake news is showing us is that uh, this is just an inevitable fact of human nature that we're going to have to deal with and not eradicate via some strange social media programs.
1: I think that's correct. I think the the disturbing thing about the uh, moral panic around uh, fake news, in particular, uh, but m- m- more generally, is that the, the the claim is that this is eroding democracy, that this is undermining uh, fundamental democratic institutions, which is a very strong claim. Uh, and what um, is, is ironic about that claim is that. It's actually a surfeit of dem- democracy in the media that has everybody concerned, that that we really are getting kind of the unfiltered, unvarnished expressions of the masses uh, thrown before us through social media. And uh, the sort of elite uh, establishment people who have been in control of public discourse uh, are frightened to death by this. <laughs> I mean, it's just... Incredible to watch uh, there's there's a very uh, astute and very intelligent um, social media scientist uh, named Dana Boyd. I think she works for Microsoft Research or at least she used to and uh, it, it's like you hear her talk and and one of the things the criticism she makes is that you know the the YouTube videos show you uh, both sides of issues that she considers there are no uh, debate about, okay? <laughs> that there just shouldn't be any other side presented as a legitimate position. And even if that other side is a position that is as horribly misguided as, let's say, Holocaust denial, uh, the idea that you can simply rule certain forms of discussion out of the public sphere strikes me as as extremely anti-democratic and yet this is what's motivating a lot of the critiques of social media the idea that there are just certain things out there that should be suppressed that shouldn't be visible
2: I like your You point out that, indeed, in the 1970s, progressives tried to force media outlets to include marginalized voices in their channel lineup through public access channels. Nowadays, apparently, the media system is dangerous because it does precisely the opposite, uh, which I think is an interesting point. Trevor
0: Burrus Though it seems to me that there's something of a difference between the fake news phenomenon, at least as people imagine it, and like what Trevor just described. Because it's not the concern is not that we are that fake news is about enhancing the voices of promoting the voices of marginalized or fringed groups and viewpoints. It's it's the fake. It's that there is intentionally misleading news that is is made to look like real information um, with the intent of deceiving people, which is a slightly different thing. And it it makes me think going back to. to Trevor's remark about the three networks and the boomers, I remember a study that came out maybe a year or so ago, it was after the election, um, about the spread of fake news online. and What they found was that sharing of legitimately fake news items uh, was heavily, heavily concentrated among boomers basically, like older Americans were sharing the overwhelming majority of it and and that would seem to click with the if you grew up in an era where you only had a handful of networks and they by and large were reputable you know they weren't they weren't intentionally lying to you intentionally sending out fake news you come to think of news from sources that look like news sources as being real in a way that maybe prior generations of americans who grew up in an era where we had you know Lots and lots of competing newspapers that all very much had their own viewpoint, like the kind of journalistic you know non biased thing was not was not part of the journalistic culture at the time um, but you grow up in a so you're used to that, but then you grow up in an era where everything looks legit you don't really know how to operate in an era that looks more like the past
1: I think there's a number of issues that you're raising there that uh, maybe have to be dealt with separately, so one of them is um The fact that this uh, environment can be manipulated, that it can, that there there are new mechanisms and new techniques and they are automated and scalable uh, that can be used to inject uh, disinformation or so-called fake news into the public sphere. And, uh, of course, that's true. And, again, um, if you've studied public relation campaigns uh, in the past, you know that uh, that happened in the past, as well, I think the main difference now is just the the multiplicity of potential sources and the scalability of the techniques, and in some cases, the incredible uh, i don't know the, what 's the word here the reach the viralness the w- well the ability to like say make a video that really looks like it's some celebrity you know having a pornographic interaction or with the somebody deep fakes or, yeah deep fakes, fakes yeah. And, you know that's that's new in the sense that um, it's different than just telling a lie in words right it's it's quite it's a little more immediate and present so definitely this is going on but and again it's a question of um <clears throat> number one it's actually more democratic than it was before in the sense that uh, if you had a handful of big gatekeepers uh, such as the associated press in the spanish american war uh manipulating your news um you know, it was probably a bit more consequential than if you've got, you know, dozens of bots or or thousands of bots or millions of bots uh, all doing <clears throat> automated uh, forms of disinformation and trying to compete with each other to catch people's attention. Um, so you were also making a, a kind of a psychological argument about uh, m- m- my generation Um that was, <laughs> that is to say, the boomers, people <laughs> like me who grew up in um, uh, the period when we did have the three networks and a more uh, sort of monolithic uh, media environment as being the ones who are uh, possibly more worried about fake news because they're more susceptible to it. And I, I don't know if that's true or not. That would require some real kind of uh, social psychology research that I certainly haven't done. Uh, but it's it's a plausible statement. But again, I think it's 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 kind of missing a point, which is that the r- the real difference now is that the the thing has been blown over. It's been uh, the, the the gatekeepers have been blown apart, and we have if we have disinformation and fake news, it's coming from all kinds of places. Among them, you know, foreign powers, which is what's panicked a lot of people that uh, they attribute. Uh, Enormous power and weight to these efforts. For example, of of Russian bots uh, and Russian, uh, you know, the Internet Research Agency, and and some people actually believe that, um, you know, that's why Donald Trump was elected.
0: That that argument that Russian bots and Russian, you know, advertisements on Facebook swung the election. The people who are are most in most convinced of it always seem to have have a hard time grappling with the the scale that we're talking about that the numbers that you see like this this tweet from a Russian bot was shared ten thousand times and you you think like ten thousand looks like a really big number but in the the scheme of you know how big Twitter is, it's vanishingly small or these these Facebook ads we heard about you know how 100,000 voters were reached by these Facebook ads and i i like to point out like i have run ads for libertarianism.org that have reached more people than that, and I have yet to swing an election, right? Maybe we did. We don't know. You've, so you've
1: really fallen down on the job. so
0: so the numbers, like the scale of the numbers feels like it throws people because we're talking, you know, Facebook has billions and billions of active users. and so any a vanishingly small fraction of them is still going to be an extraordinarily large number, but it's a vanishingly small fraction that is totally insignificant
1: right and and this is this is a very interesting debate uh, for for an academic involved in this because it's all about sort of networks of communication how they work how how influential they are but to to choose the most recent example i had of this um you probably watched the democratic debates in which tulsi gabbard uh, really slammed uh kamala harris and uh immediately there were a, a lot of tweets Uh, I think I made a tweet saying a very boring tweet saying something like, "Oh, her her attack on Harris was much more effective than Biden's." But some there was another. uh, It's turned into a hashtag. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but something like you know, Kamala Harris's toast or something like that, (laughs) and uh, um, or Tulsi destroys Harris or something like that, and uh, and all of a sudden, you know, within. Probably 20 minutes of that interaction, I got a tweet from an academic friend of mine who was retweeting uh, something from Kamala Harris's PR person saying that, you know, Tulsi Gabbard was a tool of the Russians.
2: Uh,
1: Yeah, yeah. She was a tool of the Russians. And... um, and that the Russians wanted to take out Harris, um, and so our whole discussion now is kind of poisoned by this idea that we're being manipulated by evil foreign forces. And then somebody did a um, a network analysis of all of these tweets and the hashtags related to the Tulsi Harris exchange. And they discovered that most of the tweets and retweets were actually done by sort of normal Twitter subscribers and not by anything associated with Russian. But there were a few uh, bots in there, little red dots. They were marked in the network graph. And so the people who believed in this manipulation theme said, well, you see, that's exactly what they want. They want to tweet something that is then picked up by ordinary people. So it's like one of these uh, empirically almost non-falsifiable claims that, you know, if there's lots of Russian bots, then you can say the Russians are doing it. If there's not lots of Russian bots, then you can say that they caused it. And, and they're successfully manipulating us because everybody's retweeting their stuff. Uh, so this is something that you know, requires really more scientific research. But fundamentally, it's all about the old uh, debate and communications about influence and how, uh, how opinion is molded and shaped by you know, various hierarchical relations among people. And I don't think, again, there's anything new here. I think uh, people learn. People learn that some sources are credible and some are not. Uh, some people are ideologically wedded to certain people that they're going to believe no matter what they say, and others are not. And and there's this just tremendous lack of uh, confidence in the rationality of the, the electorate, of the people. It's It's a very... Anti-democratic uh, approach to things. I think these the people really believe that the masses are sheep, and they're just pushed in one way or another by a few uh, powerful gatekeepers. And uh, that sort of leads you to the conclusion that the only way to deal with this is to have a more authoritarian communication system in which the, the good guys tell us all uh, what to think and protect us from bad things.
0: Speaking of authoritarian communication systems. Senator Josh Hawley just introduced (laughs) legislation to basically give him control over social media and and one of the the, the reasons that he gave for this and one of the things that he wanted, he says this legislation is meant to address um, and is one of the other moral panics that you mentioned is addictiveness, that there is something... Exceedingly and uniquely addictive about social media that it's been you know finely tuned through careful visual design and you know psycho- psychological studies and rigorous a b testing and all of that to get these things that are just inescapably addictive in the way that we're told heroin basically is.
2: exactly what the cigarette companies
0: did, but to apps so is there is there anything to that?
2: Uh,
1: Very little. I mean, um, certainly there is a incentive among the platforms to encourage engagement in ways that keeps people on the platform and looking at advertisements. Uh, But again, (laughs) remember, we've heard the addiction argument about almost every new media that comes down the pike. We heard it about comic books. We heard it about video games. We heard it about television itself. Uh, How many of you were not accused of being a television addict or I guess you're maybe not old enough? (laughs) Trevor Burrus We're
2: children of the 80s and and definitely that came up with my grandma. I remember my grandma saying uh, we were watching some show when I was over at her house and the fact that it ended on a cliffhanger. Uh, was like, she was like, well, that's exactly, that's how they get you. That's how they get you to come back. And, and you know, so now we have these binge watching shows and everyone's saying, I binge watch and it's wonderful. But then it's the same kind of manipulation, quote unquote, manipulation.
1: Yeah, there are definitely uh, incentives of the providers and the platforms to keep people engaged and they're competing for our attention. And there is an attention economy, but the idea that this is some form of, um, a medical addiction that requires uh, government intervention to uh, save us all, I think is pretty uh, a dicey proposition. And when you look at Hawley's legislation, it just gets to ridiculous levels of micromanagement, of the layout of the screen, of the period of time that you can do things. I mean, this is a crazy piece of legislation.
0: You, as a a way to illustrate the the way that, These moral panics can can either lead us wrong, or that we can misinterpret what's going on. You you tell the story of Myanmar, which is both, I mean, extremely tragic, but an interesting case study. Can you tell us what went on there?
1: Well, the first thing is to put it in the broader historical context. So the again, the sort of progressive, uh, I'm amazed at how progressives have taken this up. So it's just now an article of faith among them that. Facebook causes genocide. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a pretty that's main, a that's a strong accusation. claim. Yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Facebook causes genocide, and if you unpack that, they end up talking about Myanmar. And let's first put that in historical context. Uh, Myanmar is a uh, you know ethnically uh, there are there are ethnic cleavages in Myanmar. The majority are Buddhists and. Um, and ethnically different from the Rohingya, who are Muslims. So there's a religious as well as an ethnic difference. Uh, the, the, the Rohingya were brought in as uh, you know, workers, uh, and uh, like in many countries, um, you know, let's say it's the Turks in Germany or the, the uh, Mexicans in the United States, uh, they were poorer and immigrant laborers, and then when uh, Myanmar declared independence, you had a, a nationalist uh, kind of military dictatorship that just there was no place in their minds or in their political system for ethnically different people. And so from you know the 1950s, uh, they have been uh, oppressing violently often uh, and repressing politically, shutting them out, expropriating uh, the Rohingya minority. So did they embrace and use uh, Facebook uh, I- during this process to manipulate the information that the majority heard about the Rohingya? They definitely did. Um, they uh, created a few incidents in which there was um, uh, viral displays of um, you know, panics formed around uh, uh, fake threats. And uh, most interestingly, they succeeded, uh, and something that should give pause to the advocates of this uh, content regulation is that they successfully manipulated the content moderation policies of Facebook in order to take down uh, many of the exposés of their uh, violent activities. So, for example, if if a critic or a human rights advocate posted a video or a Facebook post that was exposing the violence, then it would get taken down because it had violence in it. Uh, And that's something people need to be aware of, that the manipulation works both ways. So, and and the other interesting thing here is that uh, the democratic or semi-democratic transition in Myanmar was also said to be facilitated by the rise of Facebook, that People could more freely exchange uh, ideas about how the country should be democratic and not a military dictatorship anymore. So um, suddenly that's been forgotten. I use that in the paper as an example of how moral panics sort of filter facts for people. So we're forgetting, uh, suddenly forgetting the good things Facebook's uh, presence there did and we're now uh, turning it into a totally negative and demonic force uh, that, that's uh, re- literally responsible for genocide.
2: Yeah, and it seems like we have to put this in context as you, as you do in the paper that, so Facebook is a communications device, a, a way of networking people together, and so have been newspapers and and uh, radio and other things of the past, and of course governments have manipulated those in the past to serve their dastardly aims, uh, whether it's William Randolph Hearst during the Spanish-American War, or we have—I uh, know—in the during the Yugoslav War, there was a lot of manipulation of the media to rile up the different ethnicities against each other. So, some of that's just a fact of what humans do to media and what government does. And so, but giving them more control over that seems like a bad idea in light of that fact.
1: Yes, yeah, so that's another thing I point out in the paper is that the only reason we were able to ultimately moderate and stop the manipulation by the Myanmar government, was that Facebook was not a nationally regulated uh, or government controlled entity. It was based in another country, it was relying on transnational communications across borders, and that meant that the normative and political pressures on Facebook were not just coming from within Myanmar, where the dominant powers were of course the ones impressing the the, the Rohingya.
2: And of course China, like I has known this at the outset by not letting these things into its country. It's trying to control those narratives and make them not as as democratic and bottom up, uh, and keep keep control of the information and therefore the people.
1: Exactly, and this is the probably the ultimate tragedy of the progressive critique of the social media is that everything they say, literally everything, is already been said by. China and other authoritarian uh, countries, in terms of why they regulate and control social media, so they they have to think where exactly are they leading us
0: we 've touched a bit on prior moral panic, so we mentioned comic books, uh, I think we mentioned radio as well, but and how these things played out and the similarities. But there's a section of the paper where you, you go into this and how we can we can learn from the past ones in order to better understand and, and have better perspective on what's going on now. And one of them I thought was particularly interesting, and so I'd, I'd love for you to tell us more about it, was the panic in the 17th and 18th centuries about the rise of literacy.
1: <laughs> right. Well, I mean, um, you know, the, the whole Catholic Church was based upon the idea that the clergy was the intermediary between God and the people and so they did not encourage readership of the Bible um, they you were supposed to get your exposure to the sacred texts through uh, these intermediaries that uh, fundamentally controlled you know what people could could hear or, or tried to anyway there was still various forms of heresy (laughs) even before then. But the whole uh, Reformation and the Protestant Revolution was all about uh, direct access to the text, and that was presuming a sort of the growth of literacy in the 15th and 16th centuries to the point where pretty much ordinary people could read the scriptures for themselves and make their own interpretations for it. Now, did this lead to instability, uh, sectarianism? Uh, yes, it did. There's, there's no question about it. But again, that poses you the questions. So, what what is your remedy for this? Is to, is it to keep people in the dark? Is it to keep them illiterate? Or are you just saying, you know, as society develops new media and new forms of communication, we have to learn to deal with them? In ways that are consistent with notions of individual freedom and individual choice.
2: Now, in your paper, you also deal with an important and relatively in the news right now and i think will be in the news uh, for for quite a while but section 230 of the communications decency act which has been there's been some prominent op-eds in the wall street journal by dennis prager on this which made a ton of errors and charlie kirk wrote one for washington post it seems like first of all no one understands what section 230 actually is uh, i think the new york times printed a correction to one of their 230 op-eds it said they said that tooth section 230 protects hate speech uh, online. And then it said the correction was, that was an error. It was actually the First Amendment that does that, not Section 230. So, so what does Section 230, what does it say and what does it do? So
1: Section 230 is a very interesting piece of uh, law. And I can't, sometimes I compare it to squaring the circle. So essentially, in communications, you have... Um, let's say, three different models that you can talk about. The, the First Amendment model basically applies to the government, and it says, thou shalt not. Thou shalt not censor anything, thou shalt not establish a religion. It, it just keeps the government out of the picture. And then in, in the private sector, you've had two models. One of them is what you call the common carrier model, where you know, you're, you're a telephone company, you carry calls because you're a common carrier, you're open to anybody, you're not responsible for me plotting a crime on the telephone. You're not supposed to be policing that. If I commit a crime, you're not supposed to be responsible for it. And then the other model is the the editorial model of the newspaper model, where you are responsible for what you publish. And that also means that you have complete discretion as to what you publish and what you don't publish. Now, you're not like a telephone company. You don't just have to take take information from anybody who wants to to, to transmit it and, and non-discriminating uh, and publish it. So what Section 230 does is it actually gives platforms the best of both of those worlds. It says to them, hey, in some ways you're a common carrier in the sense that anybody can put information up about on your platform and you're not going to be legally responsible for it unless it's copyright or intellectual property, but that's another issue. And at the same time, you can act with editorial discretion. You can say, "Eh, we don't want violent videos. We don't want nudity. We don't want uh, child molesters, or we don't want conspiracy theories. You can do anything, any kind of editorial discretion you like, and you're still not being given the liability that a newspaper would have for exercising that editorial discretion. So that's what Section 2 what,
0: Just for clarification, what's a platform?
1: A platform is a social media uh, entity. We call it platforms because of the economic theory about how it's a multi-sided market that matches providers and seekers of some kind of a value unit. In most cases, it's just information or videos but uh, YouTube is a platform. Um, Uber is a platform. It matches uh, drivers and people seeking rides. Uh, Facebook is a platform.
2: It matches, you know, people with
1: people they want to hear about.
2: So this would be the difference between, say, the Wall Street Journal's op- op-ed pages or just its own pages as a publisher, and the comments section of the Wall Street Journal website.
1: Exactly. So so the. Op-ed pieces where they publish something. If I write something completely illegal and defamatory, then uh, the Wall Street Journal might have to share some of the liability for my comments. Um, whereas, if um, you know I publish these defamatory comments on Facebook, um, I might get prosecuted, but Facebook would not.
2: Now, in that Dennis Prager op-ed I mentioned, he writes. Big tech companies enjoy legal immunity premised on the assumption they'll respect free speech, which is... So wrong, it's the exact opposite is true. They can censor, as you pointed out, if they wanted to be a website that was only about something, they can censor it at all. They don't have to respect free speech at all. So what do you think is going on here, especially I guess with American conservatives in particular? they're They're pretty upset about Section 230, and sometimes they call it a subsidy, which is itself oh. bizarre.
1: Well, I'm not sure what's going on with the conservative movement. Uh, yeah, okay, that's a big ever question. Since 2016. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but,
1: um, but I think in terms of intellectually, their approach to um, we we got Section 230 because of conservatives who wanted to enable platforms to get pornography off uh, the internet. And what uh, they and again, it was sort of squaring the circle. So they wanted to do that without violating the First Amendment and without and while encouraging freedom of expression. So Section Two Hundred and Thirty does that. It says, you know, you can uh, take stuff down that you think is offensive or bad for your subscribers or your users, uh, and you're not going to be held responsible or legally liable for anything else that you leave up. So that at once both limits expression and enables it. It enables it because by making them not legally responsible for whatever comes up, uh, the platform does not have an incentive to constantly suppress things. uh, But it limits it because it does give them the right to uh, take down or not allow certain kinds of content that they think will be bad for their platform and i guess it's hard for people to understand that sort of dual-edged character of section 230.
0: Given most of our conversation today has been pushing back on here's here's what's wrong with social media, here's why it's bad and and you saying wait a second, like it's over, what you're saying is overblown or not true at all, uh, but you do you do think that there is something broken with our social media environment right now. So what What is the real problem, and then how do we go about fixing it? Yeah,
1: again, the problem is really uh, almost a a social psychological one in the sense that the platforms, particularly Facebook and YouTube, have gotten so big uh, that they raise all of these normative questions. So their ability to exercise their Section 230 freedoms are almost uh, self-contradictory at this point. They, whatever they do is, not going to make, is going to make somebody unhappy, right? It's, it's very hard for them to know what is the optimum, what is the proper way to suppress and not suppress in order to optimize the value of my platform. They are under so much normative pressure from so many different conflicting viewpoints that it's there's simply no way they can uh, not be subject to this pressure of uh, of regulation, and that's kind of the thesis I made in the hyper transparency argument that they they are exposing things, and they get blamed for the things they expose uh, simply because those things are out there, and then our our natural kind of knee jerk reaction is to Eliminate that stuff from social media you know pull it down uh, block it don't allow people to see it uh, that's kind of an, a natural reaction for people you know once they've seen bad things happen uh, by people who use social media they want to block the, the the expression on social media and so there's it's very hard for them to actually figure out what is the optimal thing to do. the one thing we that I argue that they should not do in the paper is this uh, Facebook idea of kind of shifting the responsibility for content moderation onto the government, you know, having the government set the standards. And this was actually a conclusion that surprised me when I came to it. It was like I went into that writing that paper thinking maybe we do need to modify um, Section 230. Maybe we do need to make some regulatory adjustments But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, that's precisely what you don't want to do. You want the platforms to maintain the responsibility for making those choices and to bear the economic consequences in terms of their user base. And if they're learning that they're too big, that there's no way they can satisfy everybody and that there's no way they can maintain a cohesive community by being so huge – then maybe that's a good thing. Maybe the new competitors and, and alternative platforms will arise, and people will migrate to them, and we won't have this incredible concentration uh, on one platform.
0: That the, the concentration was something I was thinking about as as I was reading your paper, because one of the one of the things that always seems to happen when we're talking about policy and the Internet is that the Internet moves very, very quickly and things change very quickly. And so we think like this is the way, you know, Facebook is huge and this is the way it's always been and always will be, so we got to get this solved. But Facebook is, you know, in the scheme of things, quite new um, and the underlying tech changes and just it's you know, the world shifts much faster than the policy can catch up. Um, and, and It struck me that, as you said, like the, one of the things that sets Facebook apart from other communications mechanisms we had is that it's a, it's a single entity that is providing a single platform to billions of people worldwide, and these people are then communicating in ways that bother us, but prior to Facebook, we all communicated via email. And people were passing all sorts of crazy stuff around. You'd get these emails from, you know, your some distant family member that were just riddled with conspiracy theories and whatever else. And you would just eventually, you know, mute those people. But but that all happened. But we didn't have we didn't have the the kind of moral panic around email. We didn't have the calls to regulate email. Um, the the problems that did exist on email, say spam, ultimately were solved with. Or mostly solved with technological changes, spam filters got very good. And I wonder if what sets email apart and the reason that we didn't get a, a Josh Hawley Act for email was the the decentralization, the fact that there wasn't much that you could do. You know, like so. There's Gmail, and Gmail has a lot of users, but it's it's an open system. Anyone can set up an email server. And so, do does do a lot of these problems and the, the kind of psychological drive to blame Facebook for genocide in a way that we wouldn't blame email for genocide, does that go away if social media eventually becomes decentralized?
1: I think it, it does. Yeah, definitely. And and uh, this is uh, an amusing sort of uh, interaction I've had with some of the advocates of content moderation because typically if they're your typical kind of liberal or progressive uh digital rights advocate. They're they're very concerned about, um, you know, this sort of problems of social media and they're calling for <clears throat> various forms of uh, cracking down on hate speech and so on and so forth. And at the same time, they're con- con- complaining about the concentration of economic power and dominance in these big platforms. And they're calling for, you know, oh, let's, let's, disseminate the freedom box uh, or let's uh, have these completely decentralized forms of social media. And I'm telling to them, look, you can't have it both ways. If you want content moderation, if you want to regulate hate speech or all the other kinds of speech that you don't like, you have to have concentration. If you have the decentralized system, all that stuff is actually going to flourish. Uh, All that stuff you don't like is going to be there. Uh, And you won't be able to reach it. So make up your mind (laughs) as to what you actually want. Me, personally, I'm fine with a decentralized system. If people commit crimes, uh, I, of course, think that they should be prosecuted and discovered. Uh, But the idea that you're going to concentrate everybody into a single platform and then impose uh, various forms of content regulation and moderation on the platforms uh, working secretly or openly with the government in the background, um, this to me is, I think, the worst possible
2: outcome. And I think it's also important, Eric kind of alluded to this, but uh, we are, in terms of world history, if you look back, we, we mentioned comic books and literacy and all these television scares, they're often per- perpetuated by people who are new to the media, so older generations who aren't growing up on it, so you're not a digital native in the term. But in terms of the history of the internet, we are in infancy. Uh, the scares That's over Facebook
1: adolescence, adolescence. adolescence
2: uh, <laughs> but scares over Facebook, you know, might be a weird footnote to history in thirty years, or skip, just like while well, people were scared of violent video games or video games in general, and then. And then a lot of people grew up on video games and became adults and realized that that wasn't really a problem. And an internet generation is going to understand more better what the problems are and what they aren't, rather than people who are baby boomers. And so some of us just chill and wait and see.
1: Well, I hope so. I mean, that's um, that's an optimistic approach. The The other thing that could happen is that we institutionalize the dominance, uh, like we did with uh, you know, AT&T around 1920. And we say, okay, you're a big uh, dominant monopoly and uh, looks like you're going to be here for a while, so we're going to create uh, our regulatory system around the presumption that the telephone system is a monopoly and we're going to regulate prices and regulate this and regulate that. Um, That could happen, particularly when you have uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, giving us four ideas about how to regulate the internet.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.